Lord, thank you for this time. I thank you that you are, um, you are Father. And this idea of what it means to be a dad is so important. I pray that you would... Um, that you would lift up the position of fathers by looking at you today. That you'd remind us of what it's all about and how sacred it is. Would you give us that? And would you, Lord, would you speak to our hearts? We need you as, we need to hear your voice as our father today in our hearts and in our minds. We need it. We need you. So Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be in Luke chapter 2 today. I don't have it up on the screen for you today, so you're going to have to power up your device or flip in your Bibles or whatever you're going to do. We're going to be in two different passages. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 at the very end, and then I'm going to have you flip a, a page over to chapter 3, and we're also going to look at verses 21 through 23, um, and we're going to be exploring the biblical idea of fatherhood and all of its power, and I think you'll see that it is, um, it is good that we have a day set aside to think about what it means to be a father. This is Luke chapter 2. If everyone's there, I'm going to start reading verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to to their custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for an entire day. Okay, parents, think, use your imaginations on this. Think about this. An entire day thinking your kid is there in a caravan and you find out, you know, where is he? Oh, I mean, just feel the panic. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, you guys, I mean, it just, man, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. Everyone who had heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, Why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know that I had to be about my father's house? But they didn't understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Okay, we're going to look at, um, at two stories this morning from early in the book of Luke and also early in the life of Jesus because I want you to see um, the idea of father, fatherhood that really fueled his entire life and his ministry. Um, I want to I pawn off on you today that God as Jesus' father is the fuel in his tank that makes him who he is and that makes him do what he, what he, what he does. 
and there were some indelible moments. I read you one from um, when Jesus was 12, just now, it highlights that he's 12, but later I want to read to you from chapter 3, and the, um, which is 18 years later, and I want to show you some, a, a real dynamic principle from this. These two stories are, the, in my opinion, are the bookends of the process by which Jesus realized who he was. That's what I think. That's debatable. A lot of people are debating about that. But that's what I think. I think these two stories are the bookends of the process by which Jesus realized who he was. In other words, his identity, his sonship. He came into who he was. Something that everybody needs to do, right? I was just talking to the pastor over at Mosaic, Andrew Bach. It's incredible pastor over at Mosaic, whatever direction that is. Um, and we had a meeting, and he, it was, he was talking about how he came to know the Lord. And he went to Baylor um, University in Texas, and his, the, his, the bottom of his life basically dropped out, and he had a, a great uncle who said to him, he had to drop out of Baylor, he was a football player, um, all he knew was football, that dropped out. And he didn't know what to do. His life was bottoming out, wasn't a Christian. And his uncle says to him, I mean, imagine this. His uncle says to him, I want you to go backpacking for a year. I'll pay for it. I want you to go backpack. Uncle, not a Christian. I want you to go backpacking for a year. And I want you to do it on the cheap. I want you to do it, you know, with youth hostels and all those things. But if you want to go to a museum... Or if you want to go to something cultural, you know, something that will enrich your life, I'll pay for that. Don't, don't skimp on that. I'll pay for that part. But everything else, keep it on the cheap. And you have to go alone. You've got to go by yourself. And here's a list of books that I want you to read over this year. And here's a journal. I want you to journal every day. Go. And so Andrew sets out, and he goes, of course, to Europe. He said he kind of drew a box, kind of the, out, the outer part of Europe and into Russia and all of those places, um, Greece, coming back down through Spain, and kind of just stayed in kind of the border areas there. And he just tried, and he did it. He traveled around for the year. In the first three months, he was doing what any 21-year-old would do that doesn't know the Lord. He was bar hopping and having a good time and partying it up and those types of things. But it didn't take very long for him to realize that that was completely empty. He said, it didn't take too, much, too many porcelain seats for me to kiss as I was throwing up in these toilets in these weird random bars to realize this is not the kind of life I want to live. And so he's on a boat in the middle of, you know, he's on a boat somewhere and he's traveling. He said he hadn't spoken English to anybody in 10 straight days, starting to get lonely. And a man walks up to him and says to him, do you speak English? And Andrew was so excited. He went, yes. And the next question was, do you know Jesus? And Andrew was like, oh, well, I I don't know, maybe, you know, that type of thing. Caught him way off guard. Um, and this man, for about 20 or 30 minutes, never learned the guy's name, invested in him, spoke into his life, a voice into his life, and said, this is why you're on this trip. You're here to meet the God of the universe, and you're going to follow Jesus, and I'm in, you're, going to be a, you're going to be a leader in his community, in God's community. Just spoke that into his life and then disappeared off the, off the scene. Never learned about who he was again. 
Oh, and he said, I want you to go buy a Bible and read it. So Andrew didn't know what to do. He didn't come to Christ at that moment, but he, he was so curious. He, in the, oh, I forgot to tell you an important part. The night before, in his hotel room, he was so empty, he cried out to God, and he said, God, please show yourself to me. And nothing happened, and he said he went to bed, he went to bed sad. He went to bed crying, because he was hoping God would show up. And the next day, this man saw him and had the bravery to come into his life and say, do you know God? And then to set a course for his life, to have a vision for his life. I see you doing this. It's what fathers do. It's what dads do. I see this in you and I see you doing this. And here's why you're really here. Gives them context, gives them vision, right? So he goes and buys a Bible and Everyone he ran into, he started telling about this, telling them. He'd meet somebody new and he'd say, okay, I just met this guy on the boat. This is what he said to me. And he would ask everybody, what do you think about what this guy said to me? And, you know, and people were like, I don't know. And, you know, all these things. He said, but the Bible just came alive to him. And by the time the year was up, he came back a Jesus follower, just a, a complete, completely on fire for the Lord, following Jesus. His uncle was so angry about it because his, his uncle was going to do it again. His uncle was going to say, go out again, except this time I'll pay for you to go to Asia. And his uncle was all squared up to do this again, but he, his uncle actually said, never mind, I don't want to do this anymore. He, did, he was so upset that he found Christ on this trip, but it changed his life, and now he's and, and how he came to Seattle from Texas is just another incredible story in and of itself. Just a great man. But man, someone that came in and said, here's who you are, this is why you're here, and this is where you're going. Well, in our story, there's something similar. Jesus gets, that own, his, Jesus gets a moment like that too. Jesus goes on walkabout a little bit. He has moments very... Um, very powerful moments, formative moments in his life that, that where he started to realize this is who I am. And I think the story I just read to you is, is one of those stories and the story of his baptism is, a, is another. Um, and there's three things that I'm gonna focus on this morning from the account of Jesus at being 12 in the temple and also at his baptism 18 years later. Number one, um, I'm gonna talk about the beginning of the realization. This is Luke chapter two. Number two, I'm going to talk about the culmination of that realization where he makes the decision and goes on mission. That's Luke chapter three. And I want, uh, thirdly, I'm going to follow it up with what this means for you and me in our process. What this means for our process to our father. First of all, let's take a look at this early incident in Luke chapter two, 41 through 52. Now, most families came from all over for Passover once a year to attend this feast. So we can assume that this is not the first time that Jesus went with his family to this feast. This is what every good Jewish family did. They pilgrimaged every year to Jerusalem. And if it wasn't every year, it was every other year. It was often. Sometimes they couldn't afford to do it every year. But as often as they could, they would pilgrim to, to Jerusalem but this is a very special year. They would not have missed this year because Luke, if you notice, is very 
careful to, to uh, pinpoint Jesus' age. He says specifically that Jesus is 12 years old, and that would have been an extremely special year for a young Jewish boy in that community. It's special because it was when a boy turned 13. In fact, even to this day, folks in Jewish communities, when they turn 13, it was expected that at that point, they would assume adult responsibilities. You became a man when you were 13, okay? And that meant that one year before a boy turns 13, a boy becomes a man, 12, he entered into a very different kind of and a more intense and closer relationship with his father in preparation for, this, for when he became 13. This was an intensive time of training in which his father apprenticed him um, and basically did the three things that I told you about. Said, this is who you are, this is why you're here, and this is where you're going, and I'm going to help prepare you for this. A dad would take that year to, and a dad's been doing this subtly the whole time, but the year of 12 the dad would, would get intense, would really double down. The child would spend more time with the dad as he would explain certain things. So for example, one of the things that Joseph would have done with Jesus is that he would have started apprenticing Jesus as a carpenter. This is not an individualistic society. This is what we call a collective society, which meant what you did vocationally was, came with being a part of a certain family. Apprenticing means, good question, that means um, learning a trade. Yeah, so Joseph was a carpenter, and he uh, worked with wood. Probably, it probably actually meant more of a general contractor in those days, but he, would, he specifically worked with wood, and he would have shown Jesus the ins and out of that trade so Jesus could go on and support his family, but also support a family that he might have later on as his own. Okay, that, and that's how it all, that's how, um, that's how society raised up the next generation. But it wouldn't have just been a vocational skills that he was apprenticed in, but Joseph would have also given Jesus rigorous religious instruction as a man. He was a, the father in those, in ancient Israel was the spiritual leader of his home. It was his job, especially to a boy, to show him what it meant to follow Yahweh, to be a Jewish man who, who was a, who was a, um, a chosen, uh, of the chosen people of God. So even though Jesus had gone to the Passover in Jerusalem for many years before this, this would have been a very special year, right? Joseph might have pointed some certain things out before, but this year, 12-year-old boys stuck close to their father and their dads explained the, the reasons and the stories behind all the rituals and symbols that they were seeing. He would have taken Jesus aside and said, okay, the lampstands represent this and are linked to Exodus. And when we came out of the wilderness, and he would said, and see that over there? That's the basin where the priests washed themselves because you can't go into Yahweh unless you're clean. And they go in on our behalf. They've, and they, they sprinkle blood, they sprinkle blood um, vicariously for us this lamb is slain so that we can and on and on and on and on it would have been and they would have given them a detailed instruction this would have been a very very special kind of a boys trip in a way even though mom was there too and the whole family was there this was like a very special boys trip especially when Jesus was 12 or any boy his age was was 12 
So out of all the years that this, uh, this is the year that Jesus should have been spending a lot of time with Joseph. That's what, what was expected. This is Father's Day tour, okay? Walking with him, learning from him, listening to him, and so forth. But when the village packs up, and leaves and starts their journey back to Nazareth. That's they would pilgrim together usually as a village or as a community for safety reasons and because they were a community and the men would walk with the men and the women would walk with the women and, and usually the kids would go off and play together. All the kids in the village knew each other so they'd be playing with each other. So that's why in that society leaving your kid or traveling with your child with, a, with your whole village was relatively safe and you didn't have to keep tabs on them that often. It wasn't uncommon for them to eat neighbors' foods and you to feed the kids that were around you. You kind of all raised kids together. It was a, it was, it took a village, as the saying goes. Mary and Joseph leave and they believe Jesus is somewhere in that caravan. Again, they all would have known each other. It'd be like if we left, you know, it'd be like if we left Noble at the Shaner's house or at the Randall's house for a few days or at the Angle's house for a few days and we came back after a few days and the Angle said, oh, we thought he was with you. Or if they said, oh, we thought he was at Bob and Kristen's house or we thought he was he's at the Shaner's, right? We dropped him off at the Shaner's. We go to the Shaner's. We dropped him off at the Randall's. We go to the Randall's. We, we thought he was with the Angle's. You know, we would, we would have, we'd have some problems right? That's what's going on here. This is because in that culture, the entire community traveled together. So it was easy. They go out for a day and then they realize that he's not with them. So they go back and forth looking for him. And this, I mean, you can easily imagine how scary this would have been. Three days later, they, or actually a day later, they look for him in Jerusalem. And then three days later, they find him at the temple. Now, you might be thinking, Jerusalem wasn't as scary as it, as, as it would be here in Seattle. Okay, can you imagine, can you imagine if America was overtaken by the Russian government and we were living under occupation and, our, and your kid goes missing in one, of the, in one of the major trade routes from, very, from all different people from all over, the, all over the Mediterranean. People from different customs, different beliefs. Romans who treated young boys in a very different way than Jewish people treated young boys. You guys, this would be probably scarier than what it would be here. Three days go by. I just want you to feel this. We're not talking about a few hours. We're talking about three Days. I imagine, personally, I probably wouldn't have eaten. I wouldn't have slept. I, I would be so panicked. I'd, you know, my hair would be getting white. I'd be aging in dog ears. It, it would be so stressful. So Mary, so when you read this, you can feel this in Mary's voice. Look what she says. Son, why have you treated us like this? He's in church. They come back and he's, at a, he's in the temple. Why have you treated us like this? And look at what she says. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now notice that she brings Joseph into this. She brings Joseph into this. Now remember that by, tell, uh, by telling us Jesus is 12, 
Luke has signaled that this is the year culturally that Joseph is to play a vital role in Jesus' life. That's what this idea, your father and I, it's freighted with that cultural idea. You should be, in other words, out of all the years, Jesus, this is the year that you should be with your dad. This is the year you should be listening to him and learning from him. You should not be running off out of all the years. You're 12. You have one job, and that's to stay with your dad. Why aren't you doing that? You're going to turn 13 next year. You're going to need to learn these things, and this is the year you run off? You're not starting off well on your journey to manhood, son. That's what's coming on. So this is a rebuke to Jesus in light of that. Your father and I, how could you treat your father like this? In other words, here's what she's saying. You have not just um, scared us, you've insulted us. And you've gone against the customs of the day. And what does Jesus say in response? Oh, I have been with my father. I have been with my father. Basically, there's no problem here. I've been doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. I have been hanging out with my father in Jerusalem as a 12-year-old boy. I have been learning. I have been growing. I have been um, being prepared for something, mom, from my dad. Notice her question and his response. She says, your father, and he says, yeah, my father. He doesn't even skip a beat. That's his answer. She says, how can you treat your father like this? And the answer is, mom, it's starting to happen. It's happening right now. This is supposed to be the year which my father begins to tell me who I am. This is the year that my father is supposed to tell me what I'm doing, why I'm here, and where I'm going. That's what a father does. In the Old Testament, we call this a patriarchal blessing. Every kid got this from their dad at some point. Usually it was accompanied by a loving touch. This is who you are. This is what you're good at. This is what you do. And this is where you're going. This is it. It's happening. Mom, it's begun. It's beginning to happen. God is talking to him and wooing him and God is apprenticing Jesus. He's starting to feel it. He's starting to see it. Something's caught the boy's attention where he's starting to realize something's more important here. Something transcends even my earthly father. We don't know if, he's here, if Jesus heard an audible voice or if he's just feeling like hints in his own soul about this. But isn't it fascinating that the time a father is supposed to be mentoring his son, this is the year that Jesus' life begins to start figuring out where he's going and what he's about. And Luke puts it in here for that reason. Highlighting he's 12. Every Jewish person... That's not slight. Every Jewish person would have known, okay, I know exactly what phase in his life he's at. Okay. And God is revealing that Jesus is his son. That's the reason Jesus makes this astonishing claim in verse 49 when he says, didn't you know that I had to be about my, that I was gonna be in my father's house? In verse 50 tells us that they didn't understand what was going on. They didn't get what he was saying there. There was a disconnect for them there. They were astonished and totally confused. First of all, 
It's very difficult for us to understand um, because we live, it's, we live in a society that's westernized, we're individualists, it's tough for us to understand this. To us, this is just like the ultimate, this is like a Disney film. You know, in every, almost every Disney film, the parents are just idiots and the kids are the ones that save the day, right? Usually in a Disney film, the parents are just out to lunch, they're dumb, they've lost their intelligence somewhere along the way, and the kids see everything 2020, and they see it, and so they go behind the parents' back, and they save the world, and the, kids, and the parents come home from work after a long day, and they don't even, they're not even the wiser that these kids just saved the entire universe. So it's hard for us to understand that one of the most important things in the culture that Jesus was in is filial duty, that is duty to one's family, duty to one's country, to one's clan, to one's village, that was everything. If you don't do your part, we can't do ours. I'm dependent on you and you are dependent on me. That's the way in the ancient people, that's the way many people in the world today still view, still view society. We call it a collectivist society where you're told this is what you do so that we can keep on and society can keep running. It's very, because of this, it's very hierarchical rather than egalitarian. It's, it's, uh, top, it's decision top down rather than uh, a, a flat team kind of decision making type of a thing. You're told what you do. You might be born in a family and you might think, man, I want to be a singer. And your dad might say, sorry, you're a plumber. It's what we do. It's who we are. And duty to one's family meant everything. In other cultures, your obedience to your parents, your loyalty to your parents, your loyalty to your family, especially your father, is the ultimate duty. So Mary is coming to Jesus and saying, you've trans- Jesus, you've transgressed us. And not just our family, but our village. And not just our village, but our nation. You, you stepped out of line, and now the rest of the ants don't know what to do. We're, all, we're scattered here because you stepped out of line here. And you know what Jesus is saying in response? She says, you've shunned your ultimate duty, and Jesus is saying, I have a relationship with God that transcends and relativizes my relationship with you. Now, again, that's lost on us. In, in an individualistic world, we love statements like that. We love, like, I, I, have, I have a higher calling that transcends my, we're like, woo, yeah, that's right. But in this world, that was unheard of. I have a loyalty to God that transcends you. Jesus, isn't, is, Jesus is saying that he has a relationship with God beyond anything that anyone else has ever had. It's a deeper and different kind of relationship. Judaism, by the way, seldom refers to God as Father, I read you Psalm 68 this morning where it calls him the father to the fatherless. That's a hint of it. But Judaism in the Old Testament rarely calls it that way. But never, from what we can tell, did any individuals pray to God as my father. I've searched the Old Testament. I couldn't find a place where an individual prayed to God as my father. So when Jesus says that he is... um, or when he's simply saying, I've got a relationship with God that's beyond anything, anyone that ever had. He's actually my dad. 
He's my Abba. He's my daddy. You have to understand that's how confusing it would have been to Joseph and Mary. They would have been, what are you talking about? So on the one hand, Jesus is making this enormous claim. It's a claim to great majesty. It's a, it's a claim to the highest kind of privilege. If God is your daddy, if God is your Abba, what kind of privilege does that say that you have? But on the other hand, look at verse 51. Then he went down to Nazareth with them, and he was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. In other words, she knew something was, something, she couldn't explain it, but something was going on here. And he's obedient to them. And here we begin to see the famous two dimensions of Jesus. You'll hear scholars talk about this in the Gospels, a two-dimensional Jesus. And this is what they're talking about. The highest, the highness, the awesomeness, the divineness, and the great humility, the humanity. The metaphysical and the physical. The transcendent and the imminent. It's all right there. We begin to see traits combined in Jesus that we would never imagine being combined in any one person. This is the identity that he's starting to form. I am this, but I'm also this. Jesus is starting to form this as a young man. So in this story, we see something about the amazing sonship of Jesus. Now, let's look at another story. Turn over to, to uh, chapter 3. Let's, look, let's fast forward 18 years later. It's what Luke does if you, if you read the story through, you would notice that Luke butts this story of when Jesus was 12 right up against the baptism story. He skips 18 years. Why? Literarily speaking, he is trying, this, he's trying to show you something here. He says in verse 21, it says, When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened um, uh, Mark tells us that the heavens were ripped open in the Greek. He uses that phrase. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying what? You are my son who I love. And with you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Luke puts that in there. Do you see what he's doing here? He gives a time stamp in chapter 2. He's tw Remember, in the original, there's no chapters or verses. We have to go on how the writer, the hints that, how the writer put his material together, what, uh, it tells us what he's trying to say. He puts a time stamp on Jesus in chapter 12 of being 12, then he skips right into the baptism of Jesus. Skips all the other years right to the baptism and, and puts another time stamp. He was 30. And then adds the reference at the end, he was the son of Joseph, so was thought. So you've got this 12-year-old story where he's supposed to be with Joseph, but he finds God as his father. Then you've got this other story where he ends it with, he was thought to be the, the son of Joseph. Luke's trying to say something here. Clearly in my mind, he's trying to say something. And you've got this incredible voice coming down from heaven. In the book of Luke, the very next thing that happens um, 
is that Jesus goes into the wilderness and Jesus begins to start his ministry he start, and he starts to take on the vocation by which he's been set forth. A very, very, very difficult life. The most difficult life in recorded history. Right after this moment. Therefore, I think what Luke is trying to show is that there was a process that began when Jesus was 12 that culminates with his baptism when he was 30. It's the process of the recognition of Jesus' sonship, his identity, that began and was completed 18 years later when God from heaven overtly just says to his son, you are my son, this is who you are, you belong to me in whom I am well pleased. In other words, this is the end of the process of Jesus coming to recognize the amazing nature of who he is. And it's from this identity, sonship, that you cannot explain the life of Jesus. In my opinion, you cannot explain, if you keep reading through Luke, you cannot explain truly how Jesus acts and what he, how he talks, the things that he does, without understanding where he's talking from. He's talking from an identity. A lot of people will say, oh, Jesus uh, never claimed to be God. Well, first of all, right there, they have, you, you can, they have betrayed that they have not read the Bible. But secondly, even he, you know, let's, say, let's take the overt claims out. Just the covert, just the way Jesus thought, the way he held himself, no, you just don't, you don't, he's, it doesn't fit into the realm of just a great guy or a great moral teacher. The way Jesus talked, the way he held himself, when he says things like, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I am the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wasn't saying, I know the bread of life or here's the way to the bread of life, or here's the way to the Father, he's saying, I am the Father. Think of, okay, I was teaching this in my eighth grade Bible class, and a student from the back, uh, natural observation, when we, we were going through the I am statements in John, and the student in my class said, he sounds like a narcissist. And I said, you know what? If anyone else said these claims, you would think that, wouldn't you? If I stood up and said, I mean, would, would we have much of a church left? If I came up and I said, for seven Sundays in a row, I'm going to give you seven statements of who Mike is. I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. None of you can come to the Father except through me. I am the, I am the light of the world. Let fewer and fewer and fewer people would be coming. I probably wouldn't. I probably wouldn't make it through the seven. Unless you started walking on water, producing food. Exactly. Unless there's those things, and and there was something about Jesus where people went, you know what? For some reason, I wouldn't believe anyone else, but for some reason, I believe him. I mean, can you imagine going on a camp out with Jesus, and you're like, Jesus, check this out. We went out two by two. And we cast out evil. It was so cool. This demon came up, this guy demon possessed, and we said, get out, and he did. And then there was these sick people, and we healed them. And they're going around, and they're all swapping stories, and, and Jesus is quiet around the bond. Maybe they're cooking s'mores 
and they're all telling their stories, and then Jesus all of a sudden pipes up and says, oh yeah, this one time, well, before time even actually was even a thing, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. You guys, a great moral teacher does not talk like that. A wise sage that founded one of the world's major religions doesn't talk like that. Jesus formed an identity. In other words, he held himself in a certain view in his heart, in his mind, and he acted from that identity. Do you know that all of us do this? You are living from who you think you are. And your actions are explained by who, how you hold yourself. And that identity is supposed to be given to you by a father. Yes, in the Bible, God does identify at times as a mother. We, we talked about that on Mother's Day. Isaiah, can a, can a nursing mom forget the infant at her breast? Even so, I will never forget you. God is, but overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, God says, I am a father to the fatherless. I am the one, I am the one, and only me, I am the one that tells you who you are, why you're here, and where you're going. That's from me. It's hard for us to see the honor of fatherhood in our culture because we've degraded it so much. Fathers are a joke for us. Deadbeat dads have become all, have now replaced the image of fatherhood in our minds as someone that is special and honorable and selfless to someone who is a joke, who's a hypocrite, who's a big grown kid that never grew up. Look at all the sitcoms and the things that we laugh about. The dads are these deadbeats, basically big kids that their wives have to also take care of. That's what it's become. At best in our culture, at best, that's what it's become. But God had it set. Us dads, we represent a part of God's nature that only we can represent. And that's why it's had such powerful fallout when we've misrepresented it. Some of us, including myself, have wounds from our fathers that no wound of a mother could ever come close to. I think, in my opinion, spiritually, I think it's because a dad defines for his children, this is who you are. I see you, I love you, I'm invested in you, this is who you are, this is what you're doing, and this is where you're going. That comes from a dad. Moms can say that too, and they should, but it doesn't just quite have the oomph, the, the authority, the power when it comes from a man. That might seem sexist, but it's, it's, just, it's just real. There's something about it that God has given, and it's an awesome responsibility. Awesome. And we need it, and Jesus needed it. He's about to face temptation. He's about to face back-breaking ministry. He's about to face the brokenness of mankind. Three years of ministering and healing and dealing with the worst 
fallouts that sin can provide on the demonic scale to the disease scale to the poor, the drop, the fatherless, the widows, all he's about to take it on to corruption, a religious corruption, state corruption. Jesus is about to take it on. He's about to take on sickness and sin. So he needs the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting. How does the Holy Spirit come upon him? Here's what I want to, I want to bring a connection. Usually when I've studied this and when I've heard this preached, the Holy Spirit, the idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus is very abstract. Right? Like if I was to teach you about Jesus being baptized in the Holy Spirit and you need the Holy Spirit too, what would you think? I hope that happens. I mean, where do you go with that information? Do you go to the store and pick up a gallon of milk and a bottle of Holy Spirit? And I mean, you're like, how do you, do, you I've left out, I've left uh, churches going, feeling like, I do need that, where do I go? Look, but it's, it's beautifully not abstract. I'm trying to point out that the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' life, that means the power to accomplish everything that he's about to accomplish from now to the resurrection comes from the assurance of his sonship, his identity. The, Holy, the power of the Holy Spirit is a clear, direct testimony to his identity and understanding of who he is. That's what empowers him. That's how the Holy Spirit works in, in a life. It shows us our identity as God's kids. To be fair, I've already bashed on Disney. To be fair, Disney did get it right on one, in one particular film. I always think of The Lion King. Do you remember the, the film The Lion King? There's Mufasa, who's this incredible king. I, he's like an Aslan type of a guy. He's this incredible king. And he rules over everywhere the sunlight touches. And his little boy, Simba, is coming up under him. And he's preparing him. Someday, you will rule this. Come with me on the tour of my kingdom. And, I, and, and Simba, as a, or Mufasa, as a good king, uses his power to bless his subjects. That's what good kings do. That's in the Bible too. Good kings use their power to give. Bad kings use their power to take. That's the idea. And so he's teaching his little cub Simba, this is how it works. This is how we're going to do it. And he says to him, here's what you're going to have to do when you come up against trials and hardships. Remember who you are. I wish I would have played it on the thing if I would have been, um, had some foresight that I was going to do this, but I didn't because it's such a powerful scene. So you remember Mufasa tragically dies, was murdered in fact. Simba's life is shattered. Simba goes out into the wilderness into hiding and he kind of lives this carefree kind of failure of a life. You know, Akuna Matata, I'm shunning responsibility I don't care. I'm not taking responsibility. Could, you know, whatever, no worries type of a life. But something's not sitting right with him. He knows in, internally I'm meant for something more. And one day, this monkey, who's kind of this prophet, seer, illuminary type of, uh, uh, I think his name is Riki or something. He's, he, he's looking, because at this point, Mufasa's kingdom is falling apart. There's a corrupt king. So he goes out looking for the rightful heir of the throne. He finally founds, finds Simba. And he goes, and, he, and Simba doesn't recognize him. 
And he goes, do you even know who I am? And he goes, of course. He goes, of course I know who you are. And he goes, you're Mufasa's boy. And you've forgotten who you are. I just, and he goes, my father's dead. And he goes, no, he's not dead. I'll, I can take you to him right now. You remember the scene? And he, the monkey shoots off into the woods and Simba goes after him because he's like, I can show you your dad. Your dad actually didn't die. He's alive. And he's like, what? And so he's chasing this monkey through the woods. And finally, the monkey comes and says, stop. He's right over here. And he comes and Simba looks into a pool of water that's a mirror looking, and he's looking at his own reflection. And he goes, oh, that's just my reflection. And the monkey says, no, look harder. And this spiritual moment happens a lot like this, where he hears his dad's voice saying, Simba, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And only then, then and only then, could Simba go back and take what, and rid the land of tyranny take back the throne that was rightfully his and reign as his father would have reigned, using power to give and to help his subjects flourish. We all need a dad, right? We all need this, don't we? I, I know it's stirring. That's why, that's why that story is sold so much. It's, it gets something. It's the story, it gets at the story that's behind all stories. We all need someone that says, I see you. Live out of who you are, who you really are. Live out of, out of who you are. To Jesus, the voice says, you are my son. And you might not know this because you're here in America, but this voice is actually quoting scripture and every Jewish person would have known this. The first is from Psalm chapter two which is a messianic psalm talking about a Messiah coming and righting all wrongs, like Simba coming back and getting rid of tyranny and destroying the evil and making things flourish. Psalm chapter two is about that, such a, that kind of a figure, a king that would come. And in that psalm, God says to that person, you are my son. And then he uh, knits that psalm two together with Isaiah 42, it's a quote from a completely different part of Scripture and a completely different strain of prophecy because in, in Isaiah 42, 46, 53, Isaiah's talking about this really mysterious suffering servant. And you need to understand, here it is. This is my servant. This is Isaiah chapter 42. This is my servant in whom my soul is well pleased. You see what the voice took Psalm 2 and Isaiah 2 and galvanized them together no one had ever done that before Jesus. No one had ever done that before this voice. Jewish people thought of this messianic figure, Psalm 2, as one person and this suffering servant as another kind of person. Why did they never think to put it into one person? Because how is a Messiah going to come and conquer by suffering? It just, it doesn't make sense. If you weren't, if, if Christianity was never a thing, that, those two roles being together would not be in your mind. So naturally, Jewish folks thought of two different kinds of people. There will be a Messiah that will come to rule and, and eradicate evil and make all wrongs right, and there will be this mysterious suffering servant guy or person or people 
Maybe it's, some people thought it was Israel themselves. Some people thought it was somebody else. Whoever it is is going to come. This voice, God is saying, no, it's one and the same. See what he was saying to Jesus? In one shot, you are my son, Psalm 2. You are here to eradicate evil. In whom I am well pleased, Isaiah 42, through suffering. This is where you're going. In one shot, it's what a father does. This is who you are, I love you, and this is how you're gonna conquer through suffering. And Jesus' baptism was an acceptance of, it was mission, challenge accepted. He spends the rest of Luke, the gospels, his life, and the rest of history going around calling men and women into a father-child relationship with God the Father. If you read through the rest of Luke, Jesus is constantly saying to others, and you can be his, his kid too. They're astonished that Jesus' relationship with God is a father relationship. Remember he teaches people how to pray? When you pray, pray like this. Abba, Daddy in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. In other words, I can have the kind of unique, special, privileged relationship with God that you have? Jesus says, yes. Yes. I can operate out of that same power of identity to conquer the evil in my life that Jesus... Yes. How? Remember who you are. Remember who you are. His message to you and me is that you are sons and daughters too. And it's not just Jesus, but the rest of the Bible. Let me read this, and we're almost done. This is Romans chapter 8. Listen carefully. This is so beautiful. For those who are led by the Spirit of God, when Jesus was baptized, what came, what came upon him? Spirit of God. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit in you, the Spirit of adoption in you, you received, brought about your adoption as sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's Kids, now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may share also in his glory. Remember who you are. Remember who we are. If you're his kids, you know what that means? It means that you're his heirs. We're reading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia to Noble right now. And the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, Lewis got it right, they are to be kings and queens sitting on the thrones of Ker Paravel. Lewis got it right. It's a very theological statement. Mankind was made for royalty. And like Simba, our father says to us, wherever the light touches, that's gonna be your domain. You go out and you take dominion. You image me this way. Who is the image, the ultimate image of God? Colossians 1 says it's Jesus. And that we are becoming from glory to glory, we are turning more into his image. In other words, we're realizing we're coming into who we are. We're realizing who we are. 
Now, if you put your identity on anything else, you guys, if you have put your identity on anything else, to the degree that I have put my identity on anything else, my identity starts to melt down. If I put my identity on my own successes, oh boy, I've got a boatload of regrets. And I fall apart really quick. I can't be the husband I need to be. I can't be the dad I need to be when I'm focused on my performance. I can't do it. I start to get angry. I start to yell. I start to act like I shouldn't act. I start, I start acting like Adam rather than Jesus. What's happened internally? Is it that I got angry? Is it that? No, my identity shifted. I am my failures. I am my shortcomings. I am, he would say, no, remember who you are. You are a child of the king, Mike. You are, you are a son of God and an heir of God. The spirit that's within you is a spirit of power that cries out, Abba, Father. In other words, the Bible says, you, your own identity will not be healed until you have, in one form or another, deep in your soul, heard this in your soul from him. You are my child in whom I am well pleased. And some of you were fortunate enough to have a dad that transferred that on to you. And oh, you're, you're blessed. And they might have done it in various ways. I've heard some men's testimonies that their, their dads never spoke it, but they just knew it deeply. My dad loved me. Some, some of you had dads that, that did take them out intentionally and said to you, you're my son and I love you. And I'll always love you no matter what. Some of us are represented here and we never had that. Either we had a dad that wasn't there that wasn't, or a dad that was there but wasn't there. Is that, you know what I mean? Emotionally absent. And some of us had dads that did the opposite, that wounded us. I know people who have had dads say to them, you're worthless. Oh, the power of a father to wound so deeply. Listen, regardless of what camp you fall in with your relationship with your dad or regardless of what kind of dad you've been, good or bad, the reason you haven't been a good dad if you're out there and you haven't been a good dad, if you've failed, you've hurt your kids, is because you also have not heard this voice. Hurt people hurt people. That's how it works. On Father's Day, this is what we need to hear. You are my son. You're my kids. You're my daughter. I'll always love you. There's nothing you could do, nothing you could do to make me love you less. And there's nothing you could do, nothing you could do that could make me love you more. I love you. I'll always love you. You are my son. You're my daughter. And I'm pleased with you. I'm completely, I'm t you know what pleased means? It means I'm totally satisfied with who you are. Do you believe that? When you hear that, or does the skeptic say, oh, well, you know. No, listen. Your life hinges on your belief on that. What voice are you going to listen to? You are my son, and I'm completely satisfied with who you are. 
You need, a parent, you need a parental residence in your heart. You need a voice. Dr. Dan Allender from Seattle says a, 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 he has made a statement, a grown-up becomes a grown-up that when they stop living for their dad's approval and someone starts living from dad's approval. That's his definition of adulthood. The moment you shift from working for it to working from it, that's when you... That's, that's when you become a man or a woman. Man, some of us, we need that even now, even in our old age, right? And we need it repeatedly. I know my son needs it constantly. You still love me, Dad? Oh, yeah, I still love you. Are you disappointed in me? I can, I can discipline you and love you the same at the same time, son. In fact, I discipline you because I love you. Constant reminders, I love you, I love you. I'll never stop loving you. Do you feel the need for it? Well, here's what I would say. Like my boy, let's take a lesson from Noble. Ask when you need it. Something about kids, the pretense is gone. They can just ask things that we in our egos would never think to ask. <laughs> when he feels insecure, he just tells me, Dad, do you still love me? And I say, yeah, of course I do. And he said, oh, I, I knew that. I just needed to hear it. He says that. I just needed to hear it. We could learn a lesson there, huh? When we feel that ping of insecurity in our hearts, we could say, Dad, do you still love me? When we mess up for the umpteenth time and do the same behaviors, Dad, do you still love me? How do you know? Because on the cross, Jesus lost his daddy for you. On the cross, his dad didn't, didn't come to save him so that he could be a dad for us. So that he could be the father to the fatherless, so that he could put orphans in homes. You are my child, and I'm completely satisfied with you, and I would do anything for you. I'd rather die than live without you. Amen.